We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes, the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. We're Hi. back in Bismarck. I spilled my water. Oh, yeah. Um, Please do not. Don't spill your water on the here. computer. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have another one. Deep yeah. breaths. Yes. Uh, we're, all friends. So, we're all friends here. We are. I'm just, I'm so nervous because I called everybody a name and then I went to move my computer. It's just, it's just bad. Okay. Should we start over? I'm just kidding. Uh, all right. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks to everyone for being here with us this evening. We are coming at you from the Luft in Bismarck, North Dakota. A big thanks to Jason and his team. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Take good care of them. And of course, we greatly appreciate all of you listeners out there, too. While we're thanking people, thanks to everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. It does amazing things for us. It helps us kind of move up the charts. It helps us just it, it does great things for our podcast. So even though you think it's just kind of a it might be a waste of time. I'm telling you, it does, it does great things. And we are so, so grateful for the comments, the feedback, support we, that we receive from our listeners, good or bad. And we appreciate it. So Jonah, what are people saying about us? Yeah. Hey, I echo the support and thanks to everybody being here and, and Jason and them. Great, great stuff. We love the loof. They take care of us. Please take care of them. And the reviews go a long way, I think, to help other people decide if they even want to check us out. You know, I know I check reviews before I read a podcast, before I yeah. listen to a podcast, I'll yeah. scope out a review or, uh, so that and, stuff matters. And also weird algorithm stuff. Absolutely. So thing. this this one is from T Greenwood, 71, five stars. Banter. Contrary to a previous review, the banter on your show is one of the things that makes it great. Cool. Thank Boom. you. Thanks. Short and sweet from T Greenwood. And I tell you, I'm just touched whenever somebody feels compelled to like come to our defense right. <laughs> in I know. a review. Yeah. It doesn't it once yeah. in a while it happens. Yeah. And when someone's defending my honor, Don Palumbo. I feel good about that. I, I do too. Yeah. I do too. And that's as an independent woman. I am, you know, thank you. I appreciate that. This one from Gretchy RN, five star, not so Midwest nice. I grew up in the Midwest hearing phrases like that doesn't happen here and Midwest nice in general. It seems that people here live under the idea that because it hasn't happened to them personally, it doesn't actually happen at all or worse that the victim somehow got what they deserved. I'm interested in true crime anyway, but hearing story after story of crimes that have occurred in my proverbial backyard is as fascinating as it is sobering. The privilege in not having experienced violence personally seems to make it easier to pass blame off on the victim. And this is, I think, the true genius of this podcast. It's so satisfying to hear the podcasters argue against that impulse to write a victim off as somehow deserving of the crime. They always encourage me to see all angles of the story with empathy and understanding rather than judgment or contempt. I am a fan for life. Wow. Thanks. Thanks, the, got, thanks I, I, Gretchy. I got goosebumps. Thanks, oh, Gretchy. That, that, means, that, that means a lot. I, I think 
you know, all kidding aside and everything, uh, I can speak for both of us when I say that we are very, very conscious of the victims and nobody deserves this shit. Nobody does. Simple as that. And, uh, and it's, it is easy to victim blame. And especially as we go back in the decades, right. When there was just not a lot of victim rights and victim awareness and all of that, I, I think to be able to, to be their voice, you know, in, in the little platform that we have, it makes me sleep a little bit easier at night. Yeah. It really puts it all yeah. in, in perspective. So big, big thanks yeah. for that. And this episode is brought to you by Midwest Memoirs. It is a new venture by Jonah and I. The stories of your family deserve to be heard. Midwest Memoirs captures your living generation stories, jokes, and even tall tales. And because the most important story you'll ever hear is the story of your family. We have done it with ours and think it's something very every family deserves. Keeping in mind that every dynamic is different, we sit down with a voice you never want to forget. We interview our guest, who is your family member, or even you, for a professionally recorded conversation so the story of your family is never forgotten long after they're gone. And it's it's something that as as Joan and I go through these these interviews and they're not released to the public just to kind of just a, a quick quick little information. They're not released to the public. They are just for your family. And Jonah mentioned something to one of our guests the other day in the studio that it's it's making us better people. And it's it's so true because you know we interviewed a woman who is 97 years old and she has she's seen some things and it, it's just, it's one of the coolest experience of, of, of my life for sure. So be sure to check us out on, on Facebook, Instagram, yeah, reach out if you have questions. Yeah. Mid- Midwest memoirs have been quite the journey and just mm-hmm. getting to sit and listen to the hardships that people have faced, helping them feel like their story matters. And, and just knowing that whatever information they have to share about their family's history, what they faced, what they endured, I think a lot of regular people endure and go through and successfully manage a lot of really difficult, oh, even man. heroic situations yeah. worthy of recognition. And through Midwest Memoirs, we help those stories live on within your family. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's definitely cool. feels like it makes me a better person mm-hmm. because you're, you're walking a mile in their shoes. You're hearing the yep. things that other people have gone sure. through. So yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So check us out. Uh, you can also buy us a hot dish now at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. A big shout out to our members who continue to support us through that platform. We we do appreciate you so much. It helps us put gas in the car. It helps us with uh, hotel stays. It helps us with case files. You know, case files can cost sometimes, you know, sometimes at a minimum of $30 to, you know, hundreds of dollars. So we, we really, really do appreciate it. And your, your help and support goes, goes a long way. Yeah. So shout out you. individually to our, our latest joiner and contributor to buy me a coffee, Chris Benno. Thanks for throwing some money in the hat for us. We yeah, appreciate thank that. You. We appreciate that. So this, this episode, we go to 1988. I'm pretty sure we've been there before. I think. I, I mean, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Figur- yes, yes. Both. Both. Uh, and and you as as like the tail end of Gen Z or Gen X, and me as that micro generation, we were actually there. We're not we're not that young anymore. So Margaret Thatcher became the longest person and certainly the longest woman to serve as British Prime Minister of the 20th century. Phantom of the Opera opened for the first time in New York City, and they are about to have their first, their final curtain call as well. Wow! So very, very Phantom cool. of the that means it's closing. That's Done. end of an era. Done. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. On Broadway, yeah. Prince Charles was almost killed in an avalanche at a Swiss ski resort. President Ronald Reagan vetoed the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1987, and Congress overrode that. And uh, basically what that was was if entities wanted to receive receive federal funds, they had to comply with civil rights legislation in every aspect of their business. So they, they were like, no. 
the FAA, how about this? This one, this one kind of made me giggle. The FAA introduced a smoking ban on domestic flights of two hours or less. Okay. Right, I like, so, love it. So you're flying three hours, right. smoke them if, if you got, got them. If you, if you got that Nick Fit <laughs> over three hours, like, exactly. Just light up, buddy. Uh, what if up. they put some, like, what if they put like Nick Fit science into that decision, right? <laughs> yeah. well, we figure, we figure most people can go about two hours without killing somebody you know, before the, they the, the guy use at the, cigarette. The guy at the FAA is like chain smoking and he's like, I guess, I guess I could go like 2.5 hours, maybe at well, best. And I, I'm guessing yeah. at that time you could probably still smoke inside. Sure. The airport. So you just got people puffing heaters at that gate, like, two hours, give me a pack of cigarettes. You feel, you felt like you've been at a bar, right? And, you know, now my dad complains when he flies from, from from Pennsylvania to to North Dakota. He complains because he's like, well, then I have to go through security. I'm like, well, or you could quit smoking. But, you know, like whatever. I just love it. But if we're smoking for three hours, everybody light them up. Light them up. This is an ashtray. Light them up. Because you're going to have a connecting flight that's less than two hours and dude, you're not going to be able to smoke them. So smoke them all right this second. Yeah. Oh, what a time to be alive. I don't think that works that way, but like yeah. cigarettes, ashtrays are built into the seats oh, of airplanes. Man. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the movie Big premiered along with, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Die Hard. Dude, that's one of my favorite Tom Hanks movies. It, it's, it's also one of mine. They, he told, um, what's his face that they, they had, they had stunt doubles that were dressed like them ready to go if they couldn't do the big piano scene. And they said, basically, we just can't screw this up. And they did it. It was them. It, just a quick poll of the audience. Who thinks, uh, raise your hand if you think Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Okay. We're about okay. 50%, maybe, not, maybe not even that high. 33%, like one, okay. one third. All right. Okay. I feel like we need to talk about this more, but that's okay. Um, okay. And then in, in sports news, the 49ers beat the Bengals in Super Bowl 22. Uh, Andre the Giant beat Hulk Hogan. Wait, are you sure? Okay. Wasn't the other way around? The body slam? No, it wasn't. Okay. No, because that, no. I must have been following. Because it was following that. Okay. And I know this because I was Hulk Hogan for Halloween. It was a big moment. And so I researched a lot of this so that I could I I could get it all right. Yeah. The Don mm-hmm. Palumbo was the Hulkster I for, was Halloween. for Halloween. Okay. Yeah. I think Pictures got, out there somewhere. I, I think it got me dumped. Uh, but I showed up with a lot of confidence. That's a whole other story altogether. Yeah. Anyway, it was cool. I was the life of the party for a little while. But yeah. And then later, Hulk Hogan like politely didn't beat... Onto the giant, if I remember correctly. Someone will correct us, I'm sure. The 15th Winter Olympics was held in Calgary, Alberta, which is the America of Canada. And, um, and now if you go by, like, it's, it's super weird. It's just like abandoned. It's, it's odd to see. Sandy Lyle won the Masters and was the first British winner to do so. Kind of a big deal. Masters weekend is one of my favorite weekends of, of the year. Cal Ripken Jr. played his thousandth consecutive game. The LA Dodgers won the World Series. And the Edmonton Oilers won the Stanley Cup, getting the great one, one of his uh, one of his cups, one of his Who, rings. Who's the great one? Wayne Gretzky. Okay. I, all right. I didn't even, I thought he only played for the Kings. No. I'm not, I'm not winning that trivia. Nope. Nope. Wow. 1988. I'm going to have to like cool my jets here for a second. I'm ready to fight well, you. Well, look, I just yeah. stepped into a new reality where <laughs> Wayne Gretzky played for a team that wasn't the Kings. Okay. So. I know. It's weird for me too. <sighs> it's fine. All right. So this episode, we are going to St. Cloud, Minnesota. And like many towns in this area, the railroad was a major part in its implementation, making it a trade and processing hub for agriculture in the area. And with it only being an hour away from Minneapolis, and I think if you want miles, I think it's 66 miles. How dare you? But it's an hour. It's still one of the largest cities in Minnesota with nearly 70,000 residents today. 
I mean, in 1988, when our episode begins, there were only around 55,000 residents. So, I mean, it's had a fair, fair jump in the last decade or two. Or three. Or three. Yep. Yeah, Midwest are, murder, not Midwest right. math. We, that's right. That's right. You guys no, are lucky. We, yeah, you guys are lucky that I figured out the Roman numerals for that Super Bowl 22. If you notice me counting on my hands. Yeah, that, that was, that was legit. So in 1988, we can picture the generations before calling all of us teenagers, good or bad punks. It was hardly like the Kevin Arnold and Winnie Cooper on the Wonder Years that we grew up watching. And Gen X teens were living the life as the latchkey kid. And as kids of the generation, where a good portion of homes had both parents working outside of the home for the first time, they were largely unsupervised and trusted to grow up on their own. A lot. And a lot of them became mall rats, but they were also all the first members of the MTV generation. All in the middle of the 80s war on drugs. And basically, I don't think it was easy being a teen in the 80s, not that it's ever truly easy. Every generation has their, has their shit, right? If you ran away in the 60s, you were likely running away for self-exploration or adventure. Or like, you know, you were jumping on board with uh, the, the Ungrateful Dead tour, sure. right? I, I would call that adventure. Yeah. 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 Runaways in the 80s uh, were looked at as the throwaway kids. You know, we had the milk carton. We had all of that. And a good portion of teens who ran away in the 1980s were running away for self-preservation and survival. Very different from those of the 60s. And by 1985, according to the Department of Health and Human Services, there were more than a million children who had been reported as runaways. Holy. A million. Yeah. And by 1987, a survey that was cited by the National Resource Center for Youth Services at the University of Oklahoma found that 61% of the youths that had been a, uh, that had run away had been abused, whether it be physical or sexual. And sadly, 51% of that 61% had been abused by a parent. There's half a million to mm-hmm. 600,000 youths abused, yeah. abused physically and sexually, and that's what yeah. drove them to run away. Right. And of course, you know, St. Cloud, and, and just like we all think that it can't happen in our town, it, it does. And St. Cloud was no stranger to runaway youth. Mark Erickson and Timothy Erickson had been known to law enforcement for petty crimes, various charges of theft, vandalism, trespassing, and they didn't have a lot of parental supervision, and especially after they turned 18. In fact, according to their father, when asked about the boys by the Star Tribune, he said, quote, I didn't keep in touch with them when they were doing their own thing. It's one of those situations where, all right, my, my kids are... My kids are grown. They're, they're men now. They're grown. They can handle themselves. It, yeah. Very passive, passive parenting, yeah, like, I, I guess, to put it lightly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the brothers shared an apartment, which was a well-known flop house. It was also a safe haven for homeless or teenage runaways. And the place had its fair share of rumors, of course. Jonah, can you, can you guess? Can you tell me what, what some of those rumors that might surround a, a flop house full of teenagers in the 80s? Well, I, I'm just going to throw a few of the immediate things out there that usually occur in the 80s. Heavy drug use, maybe yes. uh, devil worshipping. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, definitely. seances, For sure. you know, yeah. devil, devil worship, sex and drugs. Those are, the, those are the three big ones. Absolutely. Obviously, every teenager in the 80s was into those three things. Right. right. Sex, yes. sex, drugs and devil worship. Yep. And that's, I mean, especially and, if it's a flop house. Right. And the rock and roll thing is just the, the reason for all of it. You know, if you stop watching MTV, it would be fine. 
Um, yeah. And so like rumors of Twisted say, sister made me do it. <laughs> right. Right. You know, we're not going to take it. Ten years later, yeah. it would be Marilyn Manson making him yeah, do it. 100%. And Ten years well, prior, it was Ozzy Osbourne. And then the Beatles. I, I, mean, and, the, I mean, it goes, it's gone on for generations, right? It's, yeah. After the yeah. Beatles, it was Zeppelin. It's yeah, feel, feel like yeah. every decade has their band or. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, rumors of satanic ceremonies, of course. Because house. it would not be the 80s if there wasn't something brought up with teenagers and satanic rituals. They like probably just, said a Ouija board or something, right? Like, oh, man. They, I, I'm not even going to confirm nor deny that because right. who knows? Like, like it's, just what, it's just what happened. So teens who needed a place to fall came to them. And they had learned from their mentor of sorts, if you can call him that, 29-year-old Eddie Ebacher or Eddie Walsh. And he was more of a Peter Pan. Uh, kids said that... He just didn't, he just was still a kid at heart and didn't grow up. So a 29 year old man child is kind mm-hmm. of their, their mentor. Yeah. And he claimed to be a financial genius. The, the cops had him pegged for more of a criminal or a con man, but I think, you know, he would disagree. They would disagree the whole, the whole thing. So according to law enforcement, just to give you a little bit of history on this guy, their mentor, uh, according to law enforcement, in 1986, he opened a checking account in in St. Cloud with $10. Shortly after, it's like a day or two later, he asked the bank to wire $350,000 to a Paris account. Genius. Yeah. yeah. Proven. Financial and genius, as stated. The bank said no, because he only had $10 in the account. Right. And so he was like, what? Are you kidding? No. He just couldn't believe it because he said to the bank... I deposited $5 million in the night deposit last night. <laughs> I mean, at least go for like 4K or 400K, right? Like you went for 5 mil. I mean... Shoot for the stars here. I guess. I guess. He, he claimed to have made millions in real estate, but lost every dime in precious metals. So oh, okay. he was... He was... Uh, he went back to his Peter Pan ways. And so... Eddie was also a safe haven for runaways or lost teens. Like his house was. Yes. He didn't live yep. with these guys. Nope. He had his he, own yep. place. He had his own place. Yep. Also, yep. okay, a very transient. Yes. Yep. And in an interview with the St. Cloud Times, he said, quote, if some kid is getting beat up as, by his parents and they are alcoholics, I'm not going to feel bad about giving him a place to stay. I'm not a bad influence. I teach them the truth. Right? And it's like, okay, cool. Sure. You know what, actually? Don't take my dude, financial advice. Right. But... but I like but, what he said but here. I, I do too. Until he keeps talking and he says, uh, I teach them the truth. I don't brain, brainwash them like they do in high school. Oh boy. And it's like, oh, oh man, you just, you had a, you had a good platform and dude. But, um, so yeah, it was clear Eddie felt like he was doing a public service, service, which service, which is, is cool. You yeah. know, I'll, I'll give him that, kids right? Saving kids from I, abuse I, and indoctrination. Yeah. And even, even if he does think that high school is, is brainwashing kids, fine. It, like I mean, the I education felt like that it, one time. It, it, it probably did, you know, but like he's, he's creating a safe place, you know, and to the point where he even opened up a, a, a teen club in a, in a, a vacant storefront. Right. I mean, so this guy did know, all this. He so did very, all of okay, this. So very, yeah, very, yeah. very well, genuinely well-meaning. I think so. And, but this is where but I, not without his is, flaws. This is where I cut ties completely, um, where I can't even back them up anymore. Um, also in that same article in the St. Clown Times, he, quote, compares the harboring of runaway children to the aid given slaves given to slaves during the Civil War era's <laughs> Underground Railroad. Okay, bud. It's a bit End of a quote. stretch. Just a tiny stretch. Yeah. I mean, 
dude, just stop talking. Just do your public service, but just... You did some don't, nice don't, things for some teenagers. Right, right. But don't, at no risk don't to your dumb. life or yeah. theirs, in theory. Right. So... Anyway, that's who they learned from. That's who they learned from. And, and he, he did, I mean, he was, he was well known in the community. He worked with a, a, a church, like youth works director and all this stuff. So it was, I mean, it was, it was legit. They were, they were, they were trying, you know? So in mid-March of 1988, four teenagers between the ages of 13 and 17, two females and two males came to stay with the Erickson brothers. Timothy Erickson was 18. His brother, Mark was 20. And along with a handful of teenage boys watched the movie, The Lost Boys, which one of my favorites. For real? For real. Okay. It's, it's, and it's why I, I can't eat rice out of a, uh, at a to-go container because... I love if, The Lost Because boys. if you, if you know, like they turned into maggots in the movie, right? Like, because no, nobody else saw that. Please shake your yeah, head. Yeah, of course. Please I mean... Make it sound like I'm not just talking. Thank you. Thank well, you. people out there that. saw the, the Lost okay. Boys. I know. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Nobody was... Nobody was you know, confirming. So, well, you told them not to make eye contact. I know, I did. You're right. So, you're right. And then I'm like staring at them like with crazy eyes, and nobody's looking at me. That's right. Okay. Thank you for listening to me originally. Anyway, so they they became obsessed, and Timothy Erickson specifically became obsessed with teenage vampires, and even went as far as wanting to form a vampire cult. Okay, that's uh, it's quite the social club. It's a it's a leap. Yeah. Yep, and so much so that he he even started uh, asking his friends questions, uh, like Bill Benedict for one one of his friends about the occult, and there were two teens who seemed to be following Timothy Erickson in whatever he did. Oh boy! So Andrew Thielen, who was seventeen, had a strange relationship with his parents, and he was one of the one of the teens that was living there. Earlier that fall or the fall prior, they'd put him in treatment for six weeks after he didn't come home one night. They'd suspected that he was doing drugs and drinking, all that stuff. So off to treatment, he goes. Pres- safe to assume there's partying going on at these places. I, th- I think like so. They weren't, they, yeah. weren't, they weren't like sober, maybe not drug addicts, no. but they're probably drinking beer, smoking weed, smoking cigarettes for sure. It's 88. Right. It's yeah. a, I mean, you know, infants were smoking cigarettes. I, I mean, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's safe to say, but like they were, they zero tolerance, right? And that was the, the day of sure. zero tolerance. Yeah. And it's your brain on drugs era. Right, yes. Yep. Which we talked about in the last episode that was released or one of the last episodes that was released, you know, the, the frying pan and the egg and you know, it's people offering drugs way more than ever happened, but it's fine. He, you know, he lived a troubled life, right? And so he was doing well for a while. And then when he got back, things were going well, but earlier that month in, in March, 1988, he had a fight with his dad, packed a bag, and then left. He was like, I'm out. And he told his parents that he was going to Tim's, who's Tim, blah, 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 blah. Nothing. So his mom did request that he stay in touch. And so he did call his parents every day around dinner to catch up. You know, so it's maybe one of those situations at 17, almost 18, like, I just can't be here anymore. And to be clear, he did his full six weeks in treatment, Mm -hmm. came home... And then stayed for a couple of days and then didn't come home at all one night. It was, it was probably... He didn't bail was, on treatment. He bailed no, he after bailed, treatment. He bailed for, okay. after. Yep. He bailed after. Yeah. He'd, he'd finished treatment, the whole, the whole thing. So the 13-year-old that was following uh, around Timothy Erickson or following him around, he was also from St. Cloud and lived... He lived a 
he lived a rough life. Uh, you know, reading the <laughs> reading the the newspaper articles. Wow, we just said things differently in the eighties. Um, but oh yeah. So according to his Lots grandfather, oh man, yeah. Uh, according to his grandfather, he he said the boy's parents were never married because, of course, that's what creates a great home, right? As if your parents, even though they hate each other, it's absolutely stay married. Sure. Um, but and then also that his mother had two other children from different fathers, you know. So really painting a picture of a stereotypical, you know, shitty home. He, right? He's going out of his way to be yeah. like, look trying to be polite here things right. aren't great right. she's a right. she's a mom with multiple kids yep. there's no I, dad in the picture she's not married i did and, say I, I took some liberties yeah. and left a few things out of what he said because oh boy. I it just, was even worse huh yeah but the kid he moved around but we know that 13, judgment yeah it, it is it's judgment you know and at 13 years old this kid was basically on his own it sucks and he shouldn't have been right so on March 21st, 1988, the Erickson brothers, so Mark and Timothy, their friend Donald Gall, and a couple of the teenage residents, including uh, also including their friend Bill Bennett, Thielen, and the 13-year-old male, decided they were going to go camping. And at approximately 11.30 p.m., Donald Gall showed up at the Erickson apartment, highly intoxicated, as they said, I think, stupid drunk, and was seemingly disruptive. So much so that he got into a fight with Thielen who he'd actually met in treatment. Okay. So that so was a 17-year-old. Yeah, they've got a, a prior thing. So, And it went fisticuffs. Like, it was physical. How did the fight go? If Donald, Donald Gall, was he like S-faced and probably I, somebody should have put him to bed? And then this guy kind I, of maybe yeah. beat the shit out of him when he was drunk and just needed to go be right. put down to bed? I think it was maybe just like pump the brakes, bud. Okay. You know, one of those things. Uh, but their plan to go camping, you know, continued. And they started to pack up because they were going to go camping at in Riverside Park, which butts up to the Mississippi River just outside of, or just, you know, still in St. Cloud. As they were packing, something made their friend Bill Benedict a bit apprehensive. He felt a little uneasy, and so he left. Bill didn't like the vibe. He did not like the vibe. I, yep. I, think, I think Bill's on I think, to something. I think Bill, I think Bill made a good made choice a good that night. Mm -hmm. And so seven campers became six. And at about 1 a.m., which, I'm sorry, how long does it take, like, a group of dudes to pack, really? I mean, I know a guy who just packed socks to go to New Orleans, right? I mean, so it took him an hour and a half. I guess, you know, you throw in a big physical fight, whatever. Uh, but you, you, you throw in intoxication. You throw a, a fight in there. This doesn't... Nothing about this seems like a cohesive plan. They could have just contemplated camping right there that night while getting drunk. Like, well, should we sure. go camping tonight? Yeah. You know, it might not have been a lot of foresight. Well, then also there was... like this is in the, this is in an era where like your tent couldn't fit in a freaking purse like it does now. Right. You know, right. Like you, you basically, right. you damn near needed a trailer to haul your tent camping back then with all the metal poles. And, and so it's, well, it's a whole, it's a whole process. I will say, I don't think they had a tent. It oh. was, it was, Sleeping really, really basically all they had were socks. Like really, oh, that's all you needed in to March, go. In March in Minnesota. Okay. That was one of my other things. Like, dude, it is March 21st in Minnesota. That Who is cool. the shit is camping at that point? I, I one time camped at the end of, of uh, the end of May and that was the worst decision of my life. And I've made some shitty decisions. <laughs> like that was bad. So anyway, it's, it's, I'm judging them for how much time it's taken. Obviously it goes a little bit deeper. 
So at about 1 a.m., the group of males males left for the freezing campsite in Riverside Park, armed with a case of beer, some pot, ephedrine, hot dogs, and a fixed blade hunting knife. Everything you need, clearly. Right. Again, how that took them an hour and a half, I don't know, but... So the group of males, once they got there, set up whatever camp they had to. to. Uh, They sat around the campfire near the edge of the still frozen river. So it's it's cold. It's cold. But I mean, I think it's it's to the point where it's just about thawing, but not like thawed. You know, there's some running water, but there's still enough ice. Well, yeah, and, I'm and, just and trying to paint the picture that it's it's cold. freezing. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah. like Midwesterners on March 21st, especially if you're in Minnesota, that's not warm. We're, no. I mean, only no. the like only the most resolute Midwesterners are wearing shorts on March 21st. Okay, like this is right, especially back in 1988. Global warming hadn't happened yet, obviously. So we didn't yeah. even know about that, so it was still cold. Mm-hmm. Way colder, yeah, way colder, just, way just colder. Based on that, the only people that were saying that were the scientists on Antarctica who were like. <laughs> We have to pay attention. We're like, nah, you're fine. It's fine. No, it's good. We don't. Look, it's, there's oh, snow okay. right next to you. Yeah. What are you saying? We're fine. Yeah. So the, they, they sat around, chit-chatted, hung out like you would around a campfire. They drank the beer. They smoked the pot. They ate the hot dogs. And they had talks into the night. They no women about, with them, right? No women. Okay. Nope. Just boys. Yeah. Just a bunch of dudes. And mind you, some children still. Like that 13-year-old is a child. It's a child. It's a child. Yeah. So they talked about women, they talked about hunting, they talked about drugs, jail, motorcycles, you know, dude things, I would presume. It, it all sounds pretty dude-ish, yeah. you know? Yeah. For sure. I mean, maybe not. I guess I've... I don't no, know if, no, I, I don't know if I've had a conversation about all of those in one conversation, but I've definitely talked about each one of them in separate. Yeah. For sure. No, if you yeah. haven't conversed on three to four of those things simultaneously at one... Boy, you ain't never had a conversation. I tell you. Okay. If, you, if you can't squeeze four of those topics in in one one chat, I'm gonna start writing that on my hand or like on my on my arm, like you know, like a quarterback. Be like, uh, yep, check. Just, that's your check. that's your conversation check. checklist right yeah. there. Yeah, I can't wait to make the friends. Wow. Yeah. So by four thirty that morning, the party was starting to wind down, and one of the males left, unna- unnamed male. He because he was cold and tired. Do okay. you think so? Yeah. I mean. And I was cold and tired before they left. <laughs> I was cold and tired just hearing about it. Yeah. But Donald Gall laid, was like, no, I'm just going to lay down. And he laid near the fire to just fall asleep. Oh, man. So Donald Gall still came with, and the guy that he got into a fight with still yeah, came with. Yeah. I, I mean, it was fine. Yeah, I know. You know, they got through it. I know. And, I, yeah. Yep. Because, you know, my most favorite phrase in the English language, which is 100% sarcasm, is boys will be boys. Oh, boy. It's fine. Don't. Actually, I'd love to have a long conversation about that. Uh, not here though. So when Gaul fell asleep, the four campers who remained ventured into the woods. And it was there that Timothy Erickson suggested they should kill Donald Gall and drink his blood. The mastermind of the plan, Timothy instructed the other campers to wake Donald up and then he would kill him with the hunting knife. When his brother, Mark, heard the plan, he refused to participate. The group left the woods and went back to the campfire to wake up Donald, following in foot, just doing exactly what he said. For over an hour, Donald Gall was beaten and tortured. Timothy Erickson found a large tree branch and, a, and bludgeoned his friend, Donald, with it. The other two teens, who were just 
boys, they were just children, kicked him with their steel-toed boots. Donald lost consciousness. When he came to, Timothy Erickson bludgeoned him again with a tree branch. The group then pulled Donald away from the fire and propped him against a tree. The 13-year-old took his hunting knife out and stabbed him. Timothy Erickson took the knife from the 13-year-old child and pulled Donald Gall's head back and slit his throat and his left wrist. He bled to death. And if that's not horrific and disgusting enough, like teenage vampires, Timothy Erickson and his two minions licked Donald Gall's blood from their hands. Donald Gall, 30 years old, left behind a large family, including his wife and daughter, Jessica. They then took off Donald's leather jacket and his watch, emptied his pockets, took his wallet, including the cash. Erickson said, quote, we've got to get rid of the body. And so they pushed Donald's body off the ice and into the open water. When the sun came up, the group cleaned up their campsite, and Timothy threw, Timothy threw his murder club into the fire, basically destroying evidence. That is, that is just so, so much. These poor kids that got roped and seduced and intoxicated by this older guy and participating. And, and this is, this is freaking horrific. Yeah. It's awful. Um, and, and, and then to act like you're not in a freaking movie, dude, you're not like, it, this isn't the lost boys, man. Like it. Yeah. That, that, that I, I'm, I'm speechless at that. I yeah. just, so once they cleaned up, they headed back to their welcoming flop house, their safe haven. But Erickson made sure that they took a different route home so nobody noticed them. On the way home, they did stop at a gas station to buy cigarettes with the money that they'd taken from Donald. Are they driving or walking? They're walking. Okay. When they returned home, Timothy Erickson bragged to, the, to one of the two girls staying at the house that he'd killed Donald with a branch and stabbed him with a knife before throwing his body into the river. And of course, he kept going. He continued to brag that he drank Donald's blood and then licked it off his hands. This guy is freaking possessed. Like, this is like weird blood rage psycho shit. Yeah. The same morning, Mark Erickson, the brother, told their friend Bill Benedict, the one that was like, nope, I'm good. This is a weird vibe. I'm going to just bounce. Uh, he told Bill about the killing. And later the same night, Timothy Erickson then brought it up again to Benedict and was boasting about what they'd done. He added that Donald's death was, quote, not really that big of a deal. This guy's delusional. At best. Yeah. Like he. Yeah. He doesn't see reality at all. I don't think so. No. I, I mean, no. Not to not making excuses for him. This is delusional stuff. But we'll talk about that, actually. Because and, and to, is and to, yeah, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but in, then to break it up is just so two stupid days, and disgusting. Right, right. So two days later, on March 24th at approximately 4 a.m., Benedict drunkenly dawdled into St. Cloud Law Enforcement Center to report the murder. Investigators took his story seriously. So he didn't trust the vibe. He didn't go. He's hearing all of this and is like, I can't do this. Well, good for Benedict. Yeah, I mean, I know. not doing yeah. the right thing. Yep. So later that morning, investigators caught up with Timothy Erickson, and, and he was arrested at the St. Cloud bus terminal. 
it is unclear if he was leaving town. I couldn't, I wasn't able to find that. Like if he was just bouncing or if he was just, you know, taking a bus to the next town over. Like there, that, that part was not clear. This, I feel like he lacks the foresight and intelligence to think he can leave town. He seems to think he just could get away with this. There's a lot of arrogance there. It feels like that he would be able to just stay there and be like, I'm fine. I'm not going to get caught. Like that narcissistic. Uh, arrogance you know, and arrogance. Ignorance. I mean, right. I, yeah. I think it's they're they're yeah. combined here in his Could case. Be. Yeah. So Erickson was brought back to the law enforcement center and interrogated. He wasn't able to run from it because investigators had already located Donald Gall's body. It was floating in the river downstream, just a short ways from the campsite. Erickson initially denied having anything to do with the murder and certainly didn't claim his vampire cult at this point. The problem for Erickson was that they'd also arrested his brother. And Mark was the one who washed Donald's jacket and also burned his IDs. Okay, so the the brother refused to actually participate in mm-hmm. the violence and the murder. Right. right. Still, unfortunately, helped his brother clean up yep. his sadistic actions. Right. And so at this point, police knew that the jacket had blood on it. And when they told Timothy Erickson that, he began to cry and then confessed to the murder. So... Vampires were a common theme because Erickson did finally confess his obsession, but said it didn't go beyond the group. And the 17 and 13 year old also made statements about being obsessed with vampires. So just freaking weird, man. It, they, and they, they told investigators how they tasted the blood and everything. And it just got, it got out of hand. You can, you can about imagine. So the four, the four campers who remained that night and took the life of Donald Gall were all arrested that same day, March 24th. Mark Erickson was charged with interfering, interfering with the scene of a death because he'd admitted to investigators the evidence he destroyed. And then days later, he was released on a $6,000 bond. The other three were charged with murder in the first degree. Thielen and the 13-year-old were charged in juvenile court, but questions remained as to whether Thielen would continue to be charged in juvenile court or not because he was 17. Okay. Okay. So they, you have a 13, a 17, and then the, the, Erickson the 19, is, or well, he was 18 when he was, when, when it was committed, but 19, and then Mark is the 20 year old. So it's a 13 to 20 years old. Man, poor Donald Gall, man. He was probably their buyer, you know, like bottom alcohol, you know, just felt like he, yeah. he, he could hang out with some young kids and, I, don't, and I think like, he was he was a bit of a lost soul too. I mean, he'd been to treatment. We said he had know, a wife and, and a kid. Mm-hmm, yeah. So in the spring of 1988, Timothy Erickson pled not guilty. Andrew Thielen was charged as an adult after a grand jury decision. Thielen, the seventeen, the seventeen-year-old. Okay. Yep. And in the summer of 1988, the quote vampire murder had taken over the community. The Star Tribune wrote an article titled "Quote Lost Boys Were on a Road Leading to Lost Lives." The article highlighted the troubled lives of the teens and young adults who were responsible for the murder of Donald Gall. Quote, but these youths were lost in another sense long before the killing. Estranged from parents and school, they belonged to a group of adolescents and adult transients who hung out at a dilapidated house near St. Cloud University. End quote. The only thing mentioned about Donald Gall, it called him, quote, an abusive druggie. Oh, for fuck's sake. So, yeah. Yeah. He deserved to die, I guess. So, when discussing the murder of Donald, the article said, quote, the arrests culminated months or years of school failure, family problems, scrapes of the law, and transiency, according to family, friends, school officials, and court records. 
Donald's family, rightfully so, in my opinion, didn't appreciate the article that had been written. His brother, Gary, wrote a letter to the editor of the Star Tribune, which was published a couple of weeks later. I'm going to read that to you. I, I Man, I saw this coming a mile away when you revealed his age. I, yeah. I felt like Im- immediately this is a victim that would be judged by society and thought ill of. People are going to say, well, what are you doing hanging out with a bunch of weird vampire druggy kids at, at this flop house? You're a 30-year-old man with a kid. You know, there's all these things that society would say yep. and that I knew that Being I'm not very saying. Judgy. But right. I just, yep. I just yep. saw it coming. And yep. it, Right when you said as he was 30 years old, I just like a mile, of course. So this is the letter to the editor written by Gary, his brother. I'm angry and upset about the June 12th Star Tribune article concerning the brutal murder of Donald W. Gall. Donald wasn't a drifter. He was a family man with a wife and daughter. He has parents, brothers, and sisters. He had problems, as we all do, but does that justify his being murdered? Your article implies that these young men charged with viciously extinguishing Donald's life were doing our society a service. I'm sick and tired of the media referring to these four people as poor, unfortunate lost boys. Those seeking to defend the young men point to their use of alcohol and drugs, but these people had choices to make on the night this incident happened. Donald wasn't just murdered. He was brutally beaten and stabbed to death and tortured for over an hour. Twice he was left for dead. Somehow, he tried to hang on to life until finally his throat was cut. Imagine a man's head crushed and stabbed until he was faceless, his throat cut, both wrists lashed. That's to be debated, but that's not just murder, that's mutilation. The parents of these men say they are sad and fearful for their sons. The fact of a prison term worries them. My my mother visits the graveyard daily and mourns the loss of a son, a son she was even denied the right to see one final time because he was mutilated. My family and I cry out for justice to be served. And I'm sorry, that was his brother Ronald, not Gary. I apologize. That is heart-wrenching to hear. Yeah. And it is. It's infuriating. But that's what we did. That's what we did. Infuriating. We we always, I mean, so many times we blamed the victim. If it was a rape, well, what was she wearing? Those types of things. With this, why was he there? He deserved to be murdered. You know, those, like, we we fail to see that from, that could be anybody. That, and what if it's your it's kid? It's not your what cousin. It's, it's not your brother. It's not your family member. Right. So it's easy to say it is, that yeah. that guy shouldn't have been at that place. Right. Well, these teenagers shouldn't have been shouldn't shit-faced have, yeah. and fucked up on drugs and obsessed with their own vampire cult to the point of sadistic murder. And the fact that the paper wants to make excuses for them because they're abusing drugs and alcohol while simultaneously bringing down Donald Gall because he's using drugs and alcohol, which makes him a less relevant victim is, is (laughs) the hypocrisy of it. Yeah. It makes my blood boil. It's baffling, honestly. Like how how we even oh, it's not get baffling. To that, it, get to that. It point. should be, but it's almost it's not. Oh, true. Because yeah. they do it all the time. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. So, in September of 1988, the trial for Timothy Erickson began. It was a it was a, a separated trial. It's a bifurcated trial, which means it was conducted in two stages, and that there was a question of mental disease. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for throwing some fancy lawyer yeah. terms out there for us tonight. 
yeah, it was in the appeal paperwork and I thought, well, shoot, gosh, dang that. I've never uh, used that one. Never said that word before. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but it does make sense. It's all, it almost always happens when there is a question of a mental disease or something. So interesting. Some sort of psychosis. The more or, you yeah. know. Ah, no, not psychosis. Oh, different. Different. Oh, okay. Yes. I mean, it can be, but in this case, no. So in the first phase, the game plan for the defense was, quote, voluntary intoxication rendered him incapable of forming an intention to murder. You can't be serious. Like, that's a defense. I got so drunk, I had no idea, no idea what I was doing. Uh, buddy, okay. it's, it's unfortunate. Okay. If you got enough money, that shit works. True. Affluenza teen. It, Hi. It is. That is well said. Well said. We're not going to go in. That's a whole other podcast whole altogether. Other podcast, but but gosh, that's real. You know what? I'm going to find one. Do Shoot it. gosh dang. Mm-hmm. Shoot gosh dang. So there were a number of testimonies that made things difficult for the defense, but a damning testimony was from Bill, Bill Benedict. Again, this dude, I want to give him a high five. I feel like, you know, when, when people say just do the right thing, like he just did the right thing each time, even if it, even if he had to get wasted to go into the, the police station to, to, you know, dump to, this to, story. To face it, to like he, liquid courage. Yeah. Like he handled it. And uh, he testified that Timothy said Donald Gall's death, quote, didn't matter because human beings are just a frame of mind. Oh. And I'm not sure what kind of philosophical bullshit he thinks that is. That's but deep. Yeah. That's a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. He, he also told Benedict that Donald Gall was, quote, going to a better place. There were a couple of witnesses who had also testified having seen Timothy Erickson's state of inebriation on more than one occasion. And his brother was one of them. As part of Mark's sentencing, he'd have to serve two years, but also testify against his brother. Mark Erickson testified that his brother appeared to have been sober during and immediately after the murder. Oh, okay. That's strange. Mm-hmm. So, well, his, so his defense is bullshit. Yeah. I mean, if he's, you know, voluntarily int- intoxicated so much, but yet appears sober, yeah. I believe that's, that's Swiss cheese there. I just poked some holes in that. Sure. So a licensed psychologist testified as an expert witness for the defense, and it was his opinion that Timothy Erickson suffered from an organic personality disorder, which we typically call today a neurocognitive disorder. And so basically what that means is it's not, it, it's something that's actually happening within the brain. And it's not, uh, it, it's not caused by a psychological disorder of some sort or, you know, borderline personality disorder, anything like that. It's, it's something Shit's not right in the brain. It's organic, right? So it, it makes sense. I'm from the. Uh, yeah. This sounds like mumbo jumbo. I don't think it is. I know, but I, holy, and, yeah. But an I mean, organic personality, an organic disorder. personality disorder. Okay. So I have a couple of arguments for that because wouldn't a psychological disorder also just be that too? But that's I'm not quite that far along in my studies, so I'm sorry, but I can't say that. So basically, because of that, he did not know the difference between right and wrong when he killed Donald Gall. That was for the defense, of course. A psychologist and a psychiatrist observed and evaluated Erickson at the Minnesota State Hospital. They came to the conclusion that he did show antisocial behavior, but did not suffer from any mental illness and did know the wrongfulness of his crime. Yeah. After several days of trial, the jury went to deliberation. Would you like to guess? My guess that he's guilty. There's yeah. no way. There's no way he's. They're, they're going to buy into this. They're, he was. They did not. He was found guilty of murder in the first degree. And a few of the deciding factors were this: 
So he came up with, he was able to come up with a plan and then revised that plan. During the murder, they dragged him to a tree where Erickson purposefully slit Donald Gall's throat. So the beating happened over here and then a short time later dragged him over there. So these separate, Mm -hmm. tragically organized incidences were able to show there was cohesive thought. Right. Yep. And then he also made the decision to clean up the murder campsite and take a different route home to be to avoid being noticed. I think a strong, so a strong making case conscious for decisions. not delusional. Yeah. You're making yeah. conscious decisions. Yeah, conscious decisions. Which separates what you're actually doing willfully, knowingly from what you might be doing on a delusional level. Yes. Okay. Yep. And then the second phase of the trial began. So this was because he had the mental disorder that he that they they claimed. And this is that uh, bifurcated part of the trial. So the second phase. And the defense claimed that, quote, mental illness had rendered him incapable of knowing the nature of his act or that it was wrong. What the, that feels like a Hail Mary pass, honestly. No, it like, does. They, it, look, defense attorneys got to do their thing. They, they do. They do. But it just, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, no surprise. The jury reaffirmed his guilty verdict. He was sentenced to life. Done. So in the spring of 1989, Andrew Phelan pled guilty to second degree murder and was sentenced to 194 months. You're welcome. I've already done the math. It's 100. It's 16 years. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm like, yeah. what, what are you doing months yeah. here? What are, yeah. are we counting like baby age or hey, something with this uh, jail I know. sentence? Like this is my 194 th- four year old. It's great. Or month year old, whatever. I can't even say the words because it doesn't make any friggin' sense. Uh, he was sentenced to 16 years and that's what the, the court paperwork said. So I, I went with it. So like anyone, uh, would appeal. Here comes the appeal for, oh, yes. What about the 13 year old? Do we, nothing, we nothing was really talked okay. about there because he is a juvenile. So right. I was most at, concerned at best, about that poor child. At, I know yeah. he got roped up into this, but my whole, like on yeah. my mind this whole time is like 13. Yeah. My, my daughter is 13. I know my daughter's still 13. a baby. She is a baby and she, she is a it, baby. Like I love her so much, right? She's like, she is a child. Because 13-year-olds are supposed to be children. They're still supposed to be children. And this kid is out there making horrific life decisions because he did not have the life that he deserved. Yeah. No, no, anything for that poor. Yeah. So we don't know. At, at, at best, he would, have, he would have served until he was 25, likely. Okay. Somewhere, somewhere in there. So, but I, I wasn't able to come up with anything there. So what's his face? Dumb shit. Um, no. Uh, Erickson. Erickson, Timothy Erickson decided he was going to appeal because anybody would, right? You got he, to. Yeah. And he claimed he wasn't showing, this is, this is his basis for appeal. He claimed he wasn't showing any signs of mental illness while he was being observed at the state hospital. So the psychiatrist wouldn't have been able to make a fair diagnosis. Oh yeah. No, for sure. Cool. Good job, bud. Yeah. Whatever. So he also claimed that he didn't have a lot of experience with law enforcement because he was only 18 years old and didn't know how to deal with them. Because of that, he claimed his confession was coerced and that it was taken when he didn't receive his right to counsel. Let me tell you, if he would have been watching Cheech and Chong instead of the Lost Boys, they'd have taught him some shit about his rights. He'd have learned some shit. And he might have been smoking more weed and doing less hard drugs and less violent occult-based killing. Right. Would and have I know, been like, 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 a, like a few more, a few more pizzas and Twinkies and a few less ephedrines I mean, he, and murders. He might have had a, like, he might have had like a, a weight issue at best, right? Like, you know, from all of his munchies. Like, I mean, I get it. So 
this this brought up the uh the the right to counsel then brought in the Miranda rights from when he was first arrested. And when someone has read their Miranda rights, law enforcement is required to get a clear answer from the suspect in question. So it has to be a clear answer. So I have the transcript. It said, question, have you been advised that you have the right to remain silent? Answer, "Uh uh-huh. Have you been advised that you have the right to talk to a lawyer and to have him present at this time and at any other time you are being questioned? Yeah. Question, have you been advised that if you cannot afford a lawyer and want one, a lawyer will be provided for you? Answer was, yeah. Question, do you understand all these rights? Answer, yeah. Question, having these rights in mind, are you willing to give me a statement at this time? Answer, yeah. The investigator proceeded, Tim, we've been talking to you since about 1235 this afternoon about an incident that occurred earlier in the week. At that time, I read the warning and statement of rights to you, and you signed it and agreed to talk with us. In our subsequent conversation, we discussed a homicide, which you admitted to your involvement. At that time, or at this time, we would like to take a written statement from you going over what we've already gone over verbally, and I would like to ask you the same questions and your answers again and put it on paper. Are you willing to do that? Answer was... Yeah. I mean, that's a lot to take in. It is. But he said, yeah, but yep. he said yes. So yeah. question, do you want a lawyer here at this time before you do that? Answer, not much he can do. Oh, my lawyer is insulted by that answer. Yeah. I mean, I feel like any lawyer should be, yeah. you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to read that in, in its entirety so that you heard his answers. Of course. You heard them, you know, go through it. And he used that. He argued his answer at the end showed. So the argue, the, the answer of not much he can do. Uh, he used that, uh, to say that it showed he didn't understand his right to counsel. Okay. The Minnesota Court of Appeals determined even if he wasn't, quote, admitted properly, a new trial wouldn't be required. Quote, this is in the appeal paperwork. The evidence overwhelmingly points to defendant's guilt of first degree murder. They continued, quote, under all the circumstances, if admission of defendant's confession could be characterized as violated of his right to counsel, it was harmless error beyond a reasonable doubt. So basically, he had confessed twice. So one thing that I did not put in just because I didn't want it, I wanted to save it until this part, was they weren't recording his initial confession. They didn't record it. Again, it was 1988. I mean, you know, you were holding a camcorder the size of that speaker. So... right. Right. And that was like that was like eight grand for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At, at best. Yeah. But then immediately following that, following following his confession, the uh, police uh, the the police stenographer took down his confession. So he confessed to it word by word. Right. So he had confessed to it twice. He was clear. So even with all of that, he was not granted a new trial. Yeah, I mean, he's guilty as yeah. the Midwest is flat. Wow, good one. Yeah, it's I'm true. I'm moments. Sure, you do. You do. So. Flannel guy here doesn't think the Midwest is flat. <laughs> like, I just saw, I just saw that. Come on. You're in the minority of that opinion. I mean, if you, you know, the more you like, if you, the more you go out to Fargo, like that's, that's freaking flat. Right. But if you, if you're like in, uh, I don't know, the Badlands, we got the Black like Hills, that, I mean, let's, then it's you know, flat. if we can be, if we can be pedantic here. Yeah. Um, so he was sentenced to life and that is what he is doing. 
And that is no less than he deserved. No. So resources for today, the People History, Historic Newspapers, dot com, topendsports.com, court documents, National Institutes of Health, the Star Tribune, and the St. Cloud Times. Uh, be sure to check out our merch store. You can find uh, find it pinned to our social medias. And uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, review on whichever platform you find us on because it it, it does huge things. And, and we really, really appreciate it. It helps us on the charts, all of that stuff. That's how that, you know, that's a big way of how they figure that stuff out. Hey, thanks to you guys. We, we have recently trended amongst the big names in yeah, the business, like, like Morbid Dateline. and Dateline. Somehow Dateline? our little, like our Keith little Morrison? independently produced kidding? Midwest yeah. based podcast is yeah. up there with some of the big names. And that's and all thanks to you. you and yeah, thank we, you so much for that. We really, really appreciate it. And Midwest Murder is hosted by this guy, Joan Lanto, myself, Don Palumbo, the intellectually lazy one, and the guy, and produced by the Good Talk Network. This episode was written by myself, Don Palumbo. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. Triple thank you, Bismarck. We appreciate you. 